We have been talking about the contemplative way for some time now, and it is just so essential to our way of thinking. And as we were talking about Sunday before last, the contemplative way is the way of humility. It's the humble way. And the two things cannot be separated. Spent a lot of time that Sunday talking about humility, what it really is, why it is such an important ingredient in Jesus' message, in Jesus' way of living life, in this kingdom that Jesus talks about. And for those of you who maybe are not as familiar with the contemplative way, it is a way of living life that is consciously present, consciously mindful, that is consciously quieting ourselves, quieting our mind in order to be able to know the truth. What truth, you ask? Pilate asked the same thing of Jesus. What is truth? What truth are we looking for? The truth that sets free, but what truth is that? You know, humility tells us, and what Jesus tells us, is really simply knowing ourselves as we really are. Seeing ourselves as we really are. Seeing reality as it really is. To step away from all the noise in our head that brings us right here and right now, it's absolutely critical if we're going to find out what this life is all about, if we're going to be able to ask the right questions of this life, if we're going to be able to go where Jesus went to be able to do this. Right at the top of your um, bulletins, I put a little quote, and it actually comes from Brennan Manning's book, Ruthless Trust, but he's quoting Richard Rohr here, actually, from another book we did in our study, Everything Belongs. Humility and honesty are really the same thing. A humble person is simply a brutally honest person about the whole truth. You and I came along a few years ago, and we're going to be gone in a few years. The only honest response to life is a humble one. Alcoholics Anonymous offers a classic definition of humility, stark Raving honesty. That's it. If we can be completely honest with ourselves, if we can see through the illusions that we build up over the years, our programs for happiness, our programs for survival, all of the emotional triggers that we just blindly move through, stimulus and response, if we can get to this point where we can really see what is going on as we are, as life is, This is what Jesus is talking about. This is why humility is so essentially important to everything about Jesus. Take a look at Psalm 131. This is the third shortest psalm in the Bible. Did you know that? There's only two that are shorter. And David writes, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child resting against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. The question that we should be asking is, how do we get to this honesty? How do we get to this humility? What's the path that we take? What do we do? And here, David, in this third shortest psalm, gives us a four-point tutorial. Here's how you do it. I don't involve myself in great matters. What were we talking about last week? Remember the difference between the micro and the macro? 
that it's so easy to get lost in the macro, to want to go out and do all these things, or to imagine all these things, to have our heads stuck in those clouds, in those great events, those world-shaking events, with what's happening politically, economically, socially. We can send our money halfway around the world to buy rice for starving people in another country, thousands of miles away, but we miss the person who's right in front of us. He just says, I don't involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. What is all this striving that we try to do? Why? To try to match up to some illusion, some image of ourselves that we carry around that we think is us. And so we strive and strive and try to do these things to relax back, to understand where our gifts really lie, to relax and just enjoy the ride. That doesn't mean we don't strive for excellence. It doesn't mean we do more than we're doing right now, but it's a difference in attitude. It's a moving back into balance. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. A beautiful image there of what that looks like, what that feels like. And then hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. We talked about Jesus' tradition of the Anavim, which was really a Jewish tradition from centuries before, but Jesus brings it forth and honors it These people who are so poor, so marginalized, so oppressed, so beaten down that all they could do was turn to God. They recognized their powerlessness. They recognized that they were stripped of anything that the world saw as great. But they understood that they were cared for at the same time. The Anavim, our kingdom. Until we become Anavim, we can't enter kingdom. The other image he uses is the child, the talia, the bondservant, the domestic slave, the child. All of these images working together. The beatitudes, giving us a laundry list of of attributes of this person who has moved into that space, that space of complete humility. This is it. This is how it works. Easy to say, hard to do. But David puts it so succinctly and so beautifully here in the short psalm. And so now we're turning the corner into Christmas. How are we supposed to understand the Christmas story? How are we supposed to understand the incarnation? Is there a deeper meaning for us that can help us in this specific regard beyond just the literal meaning that we normally are affixed to as we read the birth narrative? Jesus' message, his way of humility, the Anavim, how early in life does Jesus actually start teaching us? Ever thought of that? When did Jesus begin his ministry? Well, he was 30 years old. Was there anything earlier that started to teach us about this way, about this way of humility, about this way of moving through? You know, It's actually amazing how little we know of Jesus' birth. There are only two Gospels that cover it at all. That's Matthew 2 and Luke 2. Matthew 2 only covers the gift of the Magi and the, and the story of the Magi. He, one line is there for Jesus' birth. And then Luke 2, which you actually heard earlier, is all we really have about the details of Jesus' birth. And I know that uh, Lee read it before, but let's read it again just so we have it all in our minds as we move forward. So Luke 2, starting right at verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Kind of sounds like our world today, huh? And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea and into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there was in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And hopefully you recognize the King James Version because that just needs the King James Version. It's just so cool, you know. Sometimes you just got to do it. You know, but that's it. That's what we've got right now to work with. This is all we have in the text that survives about Jesus' birth. But even though there's not a lot of detail here, it's the small details that are really going to give us what we need to be able to understand what's going on. In a story, in a movie, any detail is not random. Right? If somebody coughs, they're going to get cancer. Right? That's just the way it goes. You just know that. Yeah? The tiniest details are always there for a purpose. There's a reason that the details are there. One of my favorite movies is uh, Gladiator. And uh, Ridley Scott is just an excellent director. And one of the first scenes is a shot of the, the title character getting ready for battle. You know, looking out over the battlefield with this grim face. And as he's turning to go to, to lead his troops, he stops and does a double take. And the scene cuts to a tiny little bird, a sparrow or something, sitting on, on a branch. And he just watches it. And you see this smile grow over his face. And the bird takes off and he follows it. And then as he looks back on the battlefield, the smile fades. And he turns back into Steel Man and walks. But that tiny little detail... If you got up to get popcorn, you miss it. So small. But it tells you everything you need to know about the man, about essential part of his character. That even though he was a warrior, he had a heart inside and a presence that could take notice of such tiny things. It's the smallest details that make the experience real. It's the smallest details that show us that we were really there, really present. I can tell you about what it's like to walk the streets of Boston in the fall because I did it. 
I can tell you how formal the men and women were with their long coats and their scarves and their gloves. I can tell you what the air smelled like. I can tell you about the amazing oyster stew that I had at Faneuil Hall, and I can go into all these tiny details. I can tell you what it feels like to pay, play baseball in the spring, you know, what your hat smells like after six innings in the sun, you know, what the glove feels like, the texture of it, the smell of it. I used to put my face in the glove because I love the smell of the leather. These tiny details give us the real presence, tell us something, and bring it alive for us. When you call into the bank and they want to prove your identity, what do they do? They ask you tiny little details that only you would know. What was the name of your first pet? What was the name of your third grade teacher? It's all about the details. So what are the details here in this story that can teach us something essential about Jesus, about his character, and about where we're going with this? Well, there's three of them that I want to talk about. The first one is that Jesus is wrapped in cloths. Swaddling clothes is the way King James translated it, but it's really cloths, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger because there was no room at the inn. Three Tiny little details. If you get popcorn, you're going to miss it. But what's going on here? Why are these details there? Why are they important? What is the purpose? And what do they show us? We need to know. I want to start with the last one first. No room at the inn. Every Christmas play that you've ever seen, (laughs) every Christmas play you've ever participated in, whether as a child or as a parent, has an inn, right? And has an innkeeper. And you got that great scene where the sad couple, you know, walks up and they are turned away at the inn. It's unfortunate that these images that we have as modern Westerners have nothing to do with what was really going on or the words that are actually being used there. In the first century, there were no motels the way we think of Motel 6. There were no hotels the way we think of hotels. What there were were rest stops along the caravan routes, much like our truck stops, you know, just a re- or a rest area along the interstate. They were called Khan in Aramaic. A Khan was one of these rest stops. It was a place where you could go. There was rough shelter for people and for animals. There was a market there where you could resupply. And of course, there was the ever-present brothel where you could get some entertainment. But that's what this was about. It was about caravan routes and trade routes and having rest stops every so often. To rest up, rest the animals, water, eat, and of course for vendors to make a lot of money. And so this is what actually existed in the time. But that's not the word that's used here. And Bethlehem was far from any trade route, and there's no evidence that there was any kind of con there in Bethlehem. But the word that is used there is a different word. It's kataluma in Greek, or sherah in Aramaic, and it would be better translated as living space rather than as an inn or a con or, or any kind of rest area. Now, to understand what that is all about, you need to know something about the construction of Jewish homes. A very poor Jewish home was just one single room with a dirt floor. And then on one portion, one corner of the room, there would be a raised platform, And that was the living space. That was where you sat, that's where you ate, and that's where you basically hung out, was on this raised platform. 
because on the dirt floor was where all the cooking was done. So you could spill to your heart's content and do what you needed to do. The other thing is the dirt area was where the animals would reside. And this sounds really weird to us that they would have their animals inside. But if you think about it, the importance of the domestic animals to these early peoples, ox, cattle, not too many of those, but sheep and goats and chickens, this is the difference between life and death for these people. These animals were their survival. And so you weren't going to leave them outside in the cold and have them get hurt by exposure, unguarded so that they can be stolen. You brought them in, at least at night. And so here you are in this one room with your family, and it's an extended family. It's kind of like Steve's family. You know, you got 31st cousins there. You got a lot of people in there. But they're up on the platform unless they are working on the dirt portion of the room with all of the animals. Now, just for a moment, go into your mind's eye and imagine what that smells like. <laughs> what that is really like. Think of the smoke from the fires. Think of the sounds of the animals. Think of the smells of the animals. Think of their droppings. Think of everything that's going on. This was life to an ancient, poor Judean family. This is how they lived. But the living space gave them a little break. It raised them up, the animals weren't allowed, and it could be kept clean, and it was a place where they could sit and relax. To be home. Shira literally means to loosen, to relax, you know, to lodge. And this was that living space. Now, in wealthier homes, there were multiple rooms that were available, and usually a second floor and a courtyard. So you'd enter from the street through the courtyard. A lot of times there was a water feature in the center, colonnades around a covered walkway. And then you'd walk into the first floor and there'd be a big open room with a U-shaped table, very low to the ground because you reclined at it. And that was a dining area and there'd be a kitchen. And then upstairs was the living space, the place where you slept, the place where you sat and hang out. Now we still had to have a place for the animals they were still essential, but now the animals could either reside in the courtyard or they would have a separate place for them. Often the houses were built against the side of a hill and there was a cave that was dug out in the side of the hill and that was the area for the animals. The temperature was constant, it was warm, and it was out of the way. And so if you think about Joseph now going to Bethlehem because of the tax, He's going back to his ancestral home, going back to the home of his lineage in order to be taxed. And the ancient Jews had these extended families. You, know, you never lost a son. You only gained daughters-in-law. Daughters would always go to live with the, at the home of the father. And not only that, they were kind of like Steve's family. They were extended throughout. So a small town like Bethlehem, everybody was probably related to everybody somehow. Cousins were marrying cousins all over the place. And these families were all connected. So what Joseph is doing as he comes back to Bethlehem, he's going to the home of a relative, most likely. And a relative who was wealthy enough to have that second floor, to have that sharah, to have that living space, that place for them to go. But they're overwhelmed. The living space is full. Eastern hospitality demanded that there was this guest room. When Jesus goes up to the upper room, to have the Last Supper before he goes to the cross. And he instructs his followers how to find it and where to go. That upper room is the kataluma. It is the shara. It is the guest room. But they rented it out in that case. In this case, there's no room for them. So they had to stay with the animals. But it was still in the home someplace. 
maybe in a cave. Often the nativity scene is, is, is pictured as being in a cave. But at least it was warm and it was private. Remember, the shara is open. A lot of families sometimes sharing the space together, especially when families are coming over. This was private and she could give birth. And of course, the manger, which was usually made of stone or brick or some kind of mud that was just used to throw the feed in for the animals, was a perfect place to lay the baby. And so here we have these tiny details that are starting to make some sense to us. A Hebrew birth, what they would simply do is cut the cord, they would wash the baby, they would rub the baby in salt, and then they would wrap tightly with just bands of cloth or maybe stray pieces of of cloth. I remember when our baby was born, they did the same thing. You know, I called it the burrito baby. They put the little beanie on it, and then they just wrap it up so there's nothing but the, the head showing. But that's supposed to give the baby some comfort, right? It's kind of like the enclosure of the womb, but wrap them up really tight, you know, because their arms aren't all flopping about, and they're warm. And this is what Mary did. It was a typical Hebrew birth. These details are showing us because of what archaeologists have found, that they fit right in with the details. So what does this tell us? What do all these little bits and pieces tell us about Jesus' character, about what's going on here? First, it tells us that Jesus and his family were anavim. They were poor. They were destitute. No one gives them a second glance. No one clears space for them. No one gives them room. They treat them just like a poor relative, like they treat any relative. First come, first served, right? You guys are too late. You get to go stay with the animals. And yet, Mary and Joseph are nothing if not grateful for everything that they receive. That character is there. That character with Jesus is there. They're vulnerable. They're dependent on their relatives. They gratefully take what they are offered. There's no illusions here about who they are, what station they hold, they're simply grateful to be. If you think about this, Jesus is teaching us about God and kingdom, about what this way looks like from his very first breath. It's not waiting until he starts his ministry. It's not waiting until he starts using words. It's here. It's now. It's in all of these details. A baby is all about sensory input, isn't it, if you think about it? It's just about the feelings. It's about the food. It's about the warmth and the closeness. It's all sense because there is no intellect there yet. There's no higher thought yet. As soon as we cross that line and we're able to think spatially, able to think with awareness, think intellectually, then we tend to want to go live there. And we leave the world of the baby. We leave that connection with sensory input. But a baby is always in a sensory now. Always now. Always here. We can imagine all sorts of things once we can think independently, once we can think rationally. We can imagine that we're independent movers and shakers, shapers of our own destiny. We can forget who we really are. Forget that we really are just these helpless infants, so dependent on everything. And at the same time, 
We typically are feel fearful that we're not up to the task of shaping our own, our own destiny, of being able to go where we want to go. And we're afraid to ask for help because we don't know if any help is forthcoming and our pride is keeping us from asking for that anyway. How are we going to break this cycle? How do we get back? I wanted to read just a little bit, again, from Brendan Manning. And this time he's quoting Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton, who struggled with low self-esteem, saw the only way out of self-consciousness as the innocence of pure presence to the present moment. Get that? The only way out of self-consciousness, this constant focus on whether we're good enough, whether we're pretty enough, educated enough, whether we're going to make it, is the innocence of pure presence to the present moment. Whether savoring the taste of Bananas Foster, have you ever had Bananas Foster? It's so good. Whether savoring the taste of Bananas Foster, listening to a Mozart concerto, sniffing the scent of a rose, staring at a spider's web, touching the velvet skin of a baby, paying attention to the person speaking to us, or conscientiously wasting time in prayer, wasting in quotation marks, we can find immediate release and relief from our fears by being in the now. Truth to tell, there is only now. I suspect that David Thoreau's off-quoted comment, I do not want to die without having lived, grew out of the awareness that self-absorption and preoccupation with the yesterdays and tomorrows of life to the neglect of the present is not living at all. What he's talking about here, this innocence of pure present to the present moment, is a re-immersion into the sensory now, just like the infant. It's moving back into that space. And look at all of these sensory images that Manning gives us to try to describe this. Taste of Bananas Foster, listening to the Mozart Concerto, sniffing the rose, staring at the spider's web, touching the velvet skin of the baby, hearing, paying attention to the person that you're talking to. All of those senses are what bring us back home again, bring us back to kingdom. This is what we're talking about. Every return to the sensory now is relief from the fear that resides in our minds. In a very real way, we have to forget ourselves in order to remember who we really are. We have to forget ourselves to remember who we really are. We have to step away from everything that we think we know about ourselves. But each return, if you think about it, is momentary. You can't hang on to it. It doesn't keep overnight any more than the manna did for the, for the Hebrews. You can't bottle it. You're either in the moment or you're not. And every moment is an opportunity to move into the moment, to dive back into the sensory now, to use your senses to lock you back into the present. Or not. And each time we do, it's like being born again. It's like moving back into the world of the infant literally to be reincarnated. Or each one of these is a little incarnation to come back into life at the physical level, at the sensory level. Where did Jesus' journey really begin? When he was baptized? When he went into the wilderness? When he came back and started his public ministry? The truth of the matter, the journey began at the incarnation the way Paul puts it, he did not see, 
his life as God, as spirit, something to be grasped, but let it go. Let it just leach out as he moved into this physical space. The beginning of Jesus' journey is the incarnation. And Francis of Assisi understood this probably better than most. Did you know that Francis of Assisi is the first one who created a nativity scene? These nativity scenes that we put up all the time, every year, and sometimes we have plays and we recreate them. It started with Francis of Assisi in the 13th century. I wanted to read a little piece from one of his followers, who was also in in the Order of Friars Minor, who was a contemporary of his, who witnessed this. And he writes, Francis would recall Christ's word through persistent meditation and bring to mind his deeds through the most penetrating consideration. The humility of the incarnation, the humility of the incarnation, and the charity of the passion occupied his memory particularly to the extent that he wanted to think of hardly anything else. And so three years before his death, he decides that he wants to recreate the nativity. He wants to experience it again. And so he had a rich friend in the city of of Grecho, and uh, his name was John, and he called him over and he said, hey, if you're willing, would you do this for me? And he gives him all the things that he's going to need, all the animals, and they start building the actual stable that they're going to use, and they put the whole thing together. It's like a play with real actors, real animals, a real baby. And the day of Christmas drew near. The time of great rejoicing came. The brothers were called from their various places. Men and women of that neighborhood prepared with glad hearts and according to their means, candles and torches to light up that night. The manger was prepared. The hay had been brought. The ox and ass were led in. There, simplicity was honored. Poverty was exalted. Humility was commended, and Gretcho was made, as it were, a new Bethlehem. The night was lighted up like the day, and it delighted men and beasts. The people came and were filled with new joy over the new mystery. The woods rang with the voices of the crowd, and the rocks made answer to their jubilation. The brothers sang, paying their debt of praise to the Lord, and the whole night resounded with their rejoicing. And when Francis came, finding all things prepared... He saw it and was glad. He is dressed in the vestments of the deacon and with full voice sings the holy gospel, a powerful voice, a pleasant voice, a clear voice, a musical voice, inviting all to the highest of gifts. Then he preaches to the people standing around him and pours forth sweet honey about the birth of the poor king and the poor city of Bethlehem. Moreover, burning with excessive love, he often calls Christ the babe from Bethlehem, saying the word Bethlehem in the manner of a bleeding sheep. I don't know how you do that. Bethlehem. But that is so Francis, you know? He called himself the jongleur de Dieu, you know? God's juggler, God's clown. (laughs) So he's saying Bethlehem in the manner of a bleeding sheep. He fills his mouth with sound, but even more with sweet affection. He seems to lick his lips whenever he uses the expressions Jesus or the babe from Bethlehem, tasting the words on his palate and savoring the sweetness of the word. Francis stands before the manger filled with heartfelt sighs and overcome with wondrous joy. That's the story of the first creche, the story of the first nativity scene or nativity play. And for Francis... 
It's complete immersion in all of the senses, all of that sensory information, the smell of the animals, the sound of the animals, the feel of something that was real. It's a dramatic moment that he recreates, and he just gives himself over to it. He's lost in this sensory overload, this sense of the moment. And what he is really understanding more and more and trying to convey is that Jesus' beginning, this incarnation, is our beginning too. Our beginning, the beginning of our journey, is always the awareness, the acceptance of ourselves as we are. Dependent, vulnerable. We have to begin at the beginning. An incarnation or this rebirth as a dependent vulnerable, powerless infant is the beginning that we're talking about here. It's the message that is being conveyed by the scriptures. I want to read a couple more paragraphs, this time from a contemporary follower of Francis. She's a nun. Her name is Elise. And she's from the Order of St. Francis. And she writes, The story of the Incarnation is really our story. It's the exact meeting point of God and human beings. We so often think of God as some kind of remote power or superhuman energy that has somehow set this whole creation thing going and then stepped back to see what would happen. It's impossible for God to step back from anything God has chosen to be involved with. At the very first moment of creation, God freely decided to get involved with you and me and all created being. Absolutely everything God does, God does with free, unconditional, absolute, and irrevocable love. This is very hard for us to understand and accept because we, of ourselves, do not naturally love this way. Yet every Christmas, we celebrate that God came among as one of us so that we could love like God and be like God and share God's own life forever. Francis of Assisi was profoundly moved as he contemplated God's coming among us as a human being in Jesus Christ. This reality filled him with awe. He understood that we human beings are essentially poor, that of ourselves we actually are nothing. Everything we are and have been given to us is by God in love. We are totally dependent on the God who lovingly and freely created us and who holds us in being. When Francis talked about poverty, this is what he was talking about, the recognition of what we are before God. When he thought about this little newborn baby lying in utterly poor circumstances, son of an equally poor mother, it moved Francis to tears that this little human being could be a full manifestation of the God of all creation astounded him and wakened in him the most ardent and grateful love. It made him want to laugh and sing and shout and weep. So that is exactly what he did. Francis was a man who really expressed his emotions. For him, the Gospels came alive and were made present in highly charged dramatic action. Word and deed were as one. To know the story was to become a participant in it, to play a role in it, to live it in such a way that its power became irresistible to others. And with that, I want to read you one last little story that is becoming an annual event for me because I love this story. And you want to talk about participating in 
the nativity, participating. Here we go. It's called Trouble at the Inn. <laughs> For years now, whenever Christmas pageants are talked about in, certain, in a certain little town in the Midwest, someone is sure to mention the name of Wallace Perling. Wally's performance in one annual production of the nativity play has slipped into the realm of legend. But the old-timers who were in the audience that night never tire of recalling exactly what happened. Wally was nine that year and in the second grade, though he should have been in the fourth. Most people in town knew that he had difficulty in keeping up. He was big and clumsy, slow in movement and mind. Still, Wally was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than he. Though the boys had trouble hiding their irritation if the uncoordinated Wally asked to play ball with them. Most often they'd find a way to keep him off the field, but Wally would hang around anyway, not sulking, just hoping. He was always a helpful boy, a willing and smiling one, and the natural protector, paradoxically, of the underdog. Sometimes if the older boys chased the younger ones away, it would always be Wally who'd say, Can't they stay? They're no bother. Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd with a flute in the Christmas pageant that year, but the play's director, Miss Lombard, assigned him to a more important role. After all, she reasoned, the innkeeper did not have too many lines, and Wally's size would make his refusal of lodging to Joseph more forceful. And so it happened that the usual large partisan audience gathered for the town's yuletide extravaganza of the staffs and creches, of beards, crowns, halos, and a whole stage full of squeaky voices. No one on stage or off was more caught up in the magic of the night than Wallace Perling. They said later that he stood in the wings and watched the performance with such fascination that from time to time Miss Lumbert had to make sure he didn't wander on stage before his cue. Then the time came when Joseph appeared, slowly, tenderly guiding Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door set into the painted backdrop. Wally the innkeeper was there waiting. What do you want, Wally said, swinging the door open with a brusque gesture. We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere. Wally looked straight ahead, but spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. Sir, we have asked everyone in vain. We have traveled far and are very weary. There is no room in this inn for you, Wally looked properly stern. Please, good innkeeper, this is my wife, Mary. She is heavy with child and needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She is so tired. Now for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed his stiff stance and looked down at Mary. With that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a bit tense with embarrassment. No, be gone, the prompter whispered from the wings. No, Wally repeated automatically, be gone. And Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary, and Mary laid her head upon his shoulder, and the two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however. Wally stood there in the doorway, watching the forlorn couple. His mouth was open, his brow creased with concern, his eyes filling unmistakably with tears. Don't go, Joseph, Wally called out. Bring Mary back. And Wallace Perling's face grew into a bright smile. You can have my room. Some people in town thought that the pageant had been ruined. Yet there were others, many others, who considered it the most Christmas of all Christmas pageants they had ever seen. <laughs> Can we get lost in the story like Wally did? 
Can it be as real to us as now to us, as present to us as it was for him so that he wrote his own narrative and went his own way within the story? Can we do that in our lives? If we can, then we will know what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the least among us that you put here to remind us of what this is all about. Never let us forget. It's not about the great things, the significant things as we see them, but about every small detail that reveals the essence of who you are and who we are in you. Help us to know who we are by paying attention to those details, Father, by getting lost in the sensory now, lost in this moment in each other's presence. Thank you for this time of year, Lord. Thank you for the remembrance of everything that you've done for us and everything that you've given. Thank you for loving us that you do. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.